You have your Bibles and like to follow along as I turn to Matthew chapter 23. We're continuing our time through the series of Matthew that we've spent uh, a number of weeks, yeah, maybe years upon so far. Um, and we're going to look at this chapter and just consider two verses, the next two verses. And I uh, would like to pray that God would fervently open up our ears, our eyes, that we may hear and see with clarity what He would have for us today. I've sensed a bit of, of sleepiness maybe in your soul, a little less energetic than we have been. Uh, I hope that we can now trust the Spirit to energize us, that we can stay focused upon the Word uh, in our time together. Matthew 23 Beginning at verse 23 through verse 24, hear the word of our Lord Jesus. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done and not leave the other undone. Ye blind guides which strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Let's pray. Our Father, this is your holy word of which your Son gave to the scribes and the Pharisees many years ago, but whose audience it was intended to be much broader, and we are now included in that intended audience to hear. And we pray that as you have breathed this woe upon the leaders of the nation of Israel at that time, who in a very short number of years would no longer be, we ask that these woes would be illumination to our own heart and to our church corporately, and it would warn us of the things that can cause us to go astray. And we ask that the Spirit would fill the preaching of the Word and freshly anoint the preacher and each one of our hearts that attend to these things that we may receive them and our hearts will be fertile ground that the seed planted may bring forth much fruit. We ask that as we hear this message this morning that you would be merciful to us for we need your great mercy. How thankful we are for the way that you deal with us gently and kindly, knowing it is the gentleness of Christ that leads us to repentance. And give us great clarity in our Lord and what great things he's done for us, that we may see through that, those new eyes of the glory that shines from his throne, and that we might desire to share this with others. Apply this message generally and specifically, pointedly and with effect to bring forth the fruit that your spirit would be pleased with to the glory of Christ and the Father in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A ship came into harbor, and as it was doing so, the crew was busily preparing for its landing after a long and good sea voyage. As the ship docked, the crew immediately began prepping the ship for its next departure, meticulously cleaning and swabbing the deck, polishing the brass, and so busy were they in all of the ship's chores, they didn't realize that they had drifted back out to sea because the one thing they neglected in the harbor was to secure the ship to the dock. They had become so preoccupied with the little meticulous things that were good, but they failed to do the main thing when they got to the dock. 
And that kind of thing can also happen to a church or a ministry and even a member of a church. When we become preoccupied in the the little things to the extent that we neglect the main thing that our Christian lives are all about. And we drift out to sea. Oftentimes unnoticed until the storm overtakes us and it's too late to get back to safety. We are in a section of Scripture this morning where Jesus is directly now confronting the scribes and the Pharisees. But the matters of which Jesus of here speaks are for a much larger audience in mind. And the woes He spoke are warnings to us to keep us from losing our moorings, to keep us from drifting out into the sea unawares. Remember that the scribes and the Pharisees began as a good movement. There was good intentions and good things about it when they began several hundred years before the time in which Christ was now speaking to them. The time between the intertestamental period, between the Old Testament closure and the time in which the New Testament once began. But it was a good movement that went bad. And in this chapter, we are considering some of the ways that that which started good went bad. This is relevant for any church to consider the warnings of this chapter. It's relevant for any of us individuals to consider it personally. We see the semblance of a church like Ephesus who lost their first love. And Jesus warned them very strongly about getting that weightier matter back. And so this passage is relevant this morning to Heritage Church as well as each one of the members in her. And the question that we need to ask ourselves corporately, is there somewhere along our good way that we have neglected the weightier matters that matter to God while we're preoccupied with the lesser matters? Are we in some way majoring on the minors and missing the main thing? Or are we heading in that direction? The same question should be asked of you and me personally. This morning I want us to consider Christ's warning to those who major on the minors and end up missing the main thing. In verse 23 and 24 is the next series of woes in this chapter of woes, a consecutive woe of eight here that we see in this section. And here we have the next one. And this woe that Jesus now breathes in verse 23, expanding it in 24, concerns the neglect of primary things while laboring over the minutiae things. And the danger here is that we need to consider is that our primary obligations could be overlooked willfully or even neglected while Christian people are very focused on very small matters, good matters even, either in worship or their lifestyle, but they're missing essentially the main thing. Verse 23, Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise, or perhaps dill and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These, the former things, these lesser matters, you ought to do, but not leave the others undone. In other words, I I think I I misspoke. These, the weightier matters you ought to do while not leaving the, the minor, the lighter matters undone. Now here our Lord informs us that there are some matters of religion that are weightier matters and some matters of religion that are lighter matters. And we need to make that discernment and that understanding. Now, 
let me qualify the way I'm using the term religion. I've been asked in the previous uh, context about this. And I know sometimes we can use the word religion as meaning different kinds of religions around the world, false religions. But here I want to use it, and I'm using it in a more narrow way, considering not necessarily that broad and generic way, but limiting it to the one true religion. Here, in the context, uh, this was the people of God that God has covenantally dealt with. I would say it would, not, it would be premature to call them Christians at this point. The Christians uh, were not claimed that until after the resurrection, and they were named that according to followers of Christ. But for the people of God in the true religion, so today we would call this Christianity, But there are some forms of Christianity today that started off good and went bad. Like some of those churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that Jesus was giving warning to. Or like some branches within the historic church started off good but went bad. They went adrift. They lost their moorings. And that's how I'm using the term religion in this portion of Matthew. Because it is talking to and addressing those who come from the right and good religion, but in their particular context, they've gone bad. If we fail to make the distinctions between the weightier matters that concern religion and the lighter matters, and we fail to make those distinctions appropriately, we may actually drift into a religion that our Lord may condemn rather than commend. So this is a serious matter for us this morning, evaluating ourselves personally and ourselves corporately. As we evaluate our own lives as, as elders and how we're leading the people, as the deacons evaluate their, their position, as each one of you as members of this church and your contribution and where you are in your private life and your family life, this is a time of examination. So let's consider our Lord's illustration as He illustrates the broader problem. The Lord's illustration in verse 23, he's addressing the, the Pharisees laboring on minutia in the area of tithing. He's just using that as a particular illustration. Now the law required tithing. The tithing means a tenth of your increase. So the Lord is not dealing with a lighter matter here. It's something that the law has explicitly revealed. And the Lord affirms that the Pharisees are tithing, even right down to their herbs and their spices. Now, the herbs that he's referring to here have very tiny seeds, they have very small leaves upon them, and actually the law did require them to even tithe those small tiny seeds and those tiny little leaves. Leviticus 27.30 says, And all the tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. Deuteronomy 14.22, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. And then Proverbs gives us this great um, uh, principle And command that we are honor the Lord with all of our possessions and with the first fruits of all of your increase. The first fruits of all of our increase. That would even include hunters and your venison and your turkey, fishermen with your catch. Farmers with the hay that they gather for their cows? I mean, think about it. So the, the Pharisees, on the one hand, were not being over-exacting. And that's why Jesus says that they shouldn't neglect the tithing of the, 
of the mint and the, the cumin and the anise or the dill. So where were they going astray? If he commended them on this lighter in relationship to the other, we put it in focus at the end of verse 23. See, verse 23, at the end it says, you were doing these things, but you omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These weighty matters you should have done while not leaving the others undone. So while they were exacting the tithe on the little things, they were neglecting the big things regarding their relationships with people. That's a big thing. And in fact, Jesus is saying, at the moment you are neglecting the matter that matters... Those are the things you ought to be concentrating on, but that does not mean, therefore, you are to neglect the others. The weightier matters were the primary obligations, and those were the things that were being neglected while exacting the precision of the tithe of their spices. Now, Jesus mentions three things particular that has to do with weighty matters pertaining to the heart of God in this. There's actually four if we look at Luke's gospel, and so we'll just briefly mention these four. Now, these are the big things. These are the weighty matters of which Christ said true religion should be about in your relationships with people. Number one, He said justice. You've neglected justice. The, the, the affairs and how they treated other people. This would include their unfairness in the way they treated people or the way that they spoke of people. Or when you or I misre- misrepresent another person, that's unjust. It's a weighty matter. Or when you or I gossip about another person or slander them or unrighteously talk about them or wrongfully fault them because you don't have all the facts or you show contempt or you belittle somebody else or you provide a sympathetic ear of listening to all such, this is not doing justice. This is unjust. This is a weighty matter. Justice also carries this concept of of judgment or condemnation. So when you're critical and you are unrighteously judging somebody else, you're doing injustice. You're neglecting a weightier matter. See, justice is not merely about what we want the laws to do in our state. Justice is how we live in relationship to other people, being fair with them. Secondly, is mercy. They were neglecting mercy. Mercy is a weighty matter in the eyes of God. Mercy was what they were neglecting in the way that they were treating other people. And we often consider God's mercy to us and not giving us what we deserve. That's how we often think about it. We, we, We are thankful that God does not give us what our sins deserve. And when we sin against God, we desire His mercy. We don't want Him to exact from us justice. And we're supposed to be merciful to other people, remembering the very mercy that God has had with us. And the practice of mercy is is essential to doing God's will and living as a Christian. It's actually one of the characteristics of the kingdom people given to us in the Beatitudes. Twice already in this Gospel of Matthew, Jesus quotes from uh, from Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He did this to justify his less rigid but more loving practice over against the Pharisees. Mercy is a weightier matter. It's a primary obligation. 
But men are often not merciful in their assessments of other people, even other Christians in their same church. They sometimes malign another person. They accuse his or her motives. They exact more from another than God exacts from him. And this mercy in your treatment of others is a weighty matter. The third characteristic here that they had neglected was faith or faithfulness. This is the word pistis. It's not merely considering a belief in God. It certainly includes that, but it is a faithful life in living that out among the people that God has put you with. It's concerning our relationships with one another. They, they should have not left faithfulness undone. Jesus is speaking here that this is something they ought to have done. The meaning seems to be here that Jesus is here speaking in terms of faithfulness as it pertains to living out the godly character in relationship to others. Faithfulness in pursuing the character of God in all of your relationships is a weighty matter, a primary obligation. Now Luke in addressing this very same topic here with Jesus in Luke 11.42, adds one other characteristic, and that is love, that they also had neglected, the love of God. This is God's love and how he, he treats others. And this is expected of us, that we are to love one another, even as, oh, as God has loved us and we can't say we love God if we're not loving our neighbor because that is the expression of how we give our love to our Heavenly Father. And this was also a primary obligation of all of God's people. It's essential to who we are. And, and they were neglecting this. And if these four things have been neglected in your life or by this church, we're drifting from our moorings. We're drifting. Verse 24 uses a very vivid imagery in the day for the ones to whom he is speaking about straining out a gnat by, while swallowing a camel. A gnat is one of the smallest creatures. It was for a Jew also an unclean animal. And so he could not ingest a gnat, and so what they would do meticulously so, if they found a gnat in their cup of wine, they would take a strainer and they would meticulously strain out the gnat so as to uphold that law of cleanness. And while they were intent on getting the gnat out, they were swallowing a camel, humps and all. Now, the camel in their day would have been one of the largest animals known to the Jews. It also was unclean and could not be eaten according to their dietary laws. So here we have a comparison, kind of like that, that splinter in your brother's eye, but the plank in your own. And we have this, this stark contrast, which, have been, which should have been just so evident that they were meticulously handling this matter with care, but they were literally swallowing the whole camel, metaphorically speaking, because they were majoring on the minors and they missed the big picture of what they were actually doing. Now that's about all the teaching I can give you or I want to give you on this passage. I want to spend the rest of our time in application. How can this kind of thing happen? How did it happen to the Pharisees? would be instructive for us how it could happen to us as well. As a community of believers in a church, it is impossible to live apart from the body and the body life from one another. And so the practices of our brethren and one another and, and their convictions and their viewpoint come into our room and we into theirs. 
And when and how religion goes wrong, when it is preoccupied with the minutiae, is when somehow it overlooks the really big issues about what those relationships are with others. You know, relationships are things we have to work at. They can be broken. They can be strained. They can grow cold because one or both parties have neglected the weightier matters. Perhaps one or both parties have failed to be just and fair in their treatment. Or they failed to be merciful when others made the mistakes against them. Or they failed to be faithful in their godliness in the way they treated others as, as Christ would have treated them, has treated them, or they failed to love. And when tensions often come into a ministry or between people within a church, it can take people off course and they can drift in the applications of the Scripture, in the applications. And the main point that we should be looking out for is when our applications from the Scriptures become confused with the Scriptures themselves. That's what happened with the Pharisees. When the applications of the principles were so lived out that they actually became the new principle. We need to look out for that. Constantly. In a good and biblical church, when the principles of Scripture are considered, there's very little resistance on that. That's also true in, in preaching and in, in, our, in our discussions among each other. But when the principles of Scripture need to be applied in order to live the gospel out, that is where the problem comes. And yet the application of Scripture is necessary. This application of Scripture is is important. We have to apply the principles of Scripture to actually live the life of the Gospel, but it is at the level of application that our flesh can actually pitch in and try to do a little help. For preachers, as long as we are simply expositing the Scriptures in a biblical church usually the people are going to hang with you. But when you begin making application, that's where the division comes. That's what divides the crowd, sometimes divides the church. It's like when Stephen, when he was preaching in Acts 7, and he was going through the history of Israel, the Jews were hanging with him. And they were right there with him all along, and nodding along. And then he comes to the application. And they gnashed at him with their teeth, and they stoned him. And see, this is one of the reasons in some circles that applications of the Scripture are neglected, because it, it divides the crowd. It divides churches, it divides people. But you have to apply the Scriptures. We are to go be doers of the Word and not hearers only to do that requires application. And while application of Scripture is necessary, good religion can go astray when the applications are then helped along when the flesh kicks in. And the flesh can kick in with application in one of two extreme ways. Let me cover two extreme ways. Number one is when people resist application. That in and of itself could be a fleshy response by just resisting application. But then, in response to the resistance of application, there can be a response to that resistance with an, a fleshy, unhealthy manner. That's number one. We're going to try to tease that out. Number two would be another extreme where the flesh pushes application to excessive degrees. Now these are two extremes where application is confused with principles 
or the Scripture itself and with spirituality. When you raise your application to the level of Scripture or biblical righteousness or to your level of spirituality or when your application of a principle becomes the principle itself, which is what happened to the Pharisees, that's where things go wrong. So how does that happen? First of all, let's consider that first application, that first extreme manner, and this happens when someone resists your application to Scripture. Now, when you are having a discussion or you have some conviction and there's a principle of Scripture that's involved, as soon as you apply that and somebody else resists that, you have tension and that results in conflict. One person in the church makes a particular application and another resists it, and perhaps there's a resulting conflict that comes over the application. And then when conflict comes into the application, the one who is making the application tries to refine his position, tries to sew it up a little tighter. It's like raising your children in your home and you encounter resistance from them in some standard that you have in your home, like making them make up their bed, for instance. And when they're young, they resist making up their bed every morning that you might set as a standard in your home. But as children grow older, uh, they don't merely resist. They want to know why. Why should I make my bed up? I'm just going to get back into it and mess it all back up again. You know, if I've made my bed up, it's just going to decrease the efficiency because I leave it the same way and then I could just go back and get in it. Well, what does it matter? And so you, you get this, right? That's when kids get older. I see some of you going, you know. Yeah. And as a parent, you, you tend to refine your thinking in response to the one that's resisting, and you start to refine your application, trying to make it an airtight case, trying to sew up all those loopholes that are being thrown at you, and you provide reasons, and, and then you start providing your justifications, and, and, and you're trying to sew it all up of the why. And that's often what happens to us when we're in disagreement with the brother over a matter of the application of Scripture. But we need to know that the Scriptures, in some cases, allow for differing applications. See, conflict occurs in the thing that creates the necessity for a person making the application to try to tighten it up and to, to sew it up all the more firm, to make it a, a, an airtight case. When he feels that he's got to do that, he can start to drift. Because sometimes you can't do that scripturally. Sometimes the scripture doesn't allow you to go as narrow as you would like to go. Now you might have your good reasons for making that application in your context what it is. And that might be very legitimate. But sometimes the scripture just doesn't address it the way that you're applying it. You may have a good reason to, to do what you do and to apply that principle in your context or with your family or even with your children. I mean, you may know that your children have a particular tendency that you are applying in a very specific manner, and that may be completely legitimate. But others may not have that same need. And you can't then find the application for that specific scripture. And, and then what you have to do, you have to tighten it down. You begin sewing up all the loopholes. And you inevitably, in order to try to make it that tight and that hermeneutically sealed, you begin appealing or resorting to things that are outside of Scripture. And we begin to justify our application this way. We might resort to the tradition. Church tradition. We might resort to 
supporting our application with some page out of church history. Or maybe the early church fathers did it this way. Or perhaps this is what Calvin did in Geneva. Therefore, that's sewing it up. Or maybe we appeal to science or some theory of this or that. And maybe we have some validity in what we're saying. It might even be legitimate in what you are saying in your application. But we need to recognize that when we do that, we have just stepped out of Scripture. When we don't recognize that we're doing this and we step out of Scripture, what happens then in our minds, those kind of arguments become equal in weight with the Scripture. And that's one of the ways that our applications come into the weight of Scripture itself or even becomes the new principle of Scripture. Again, let me summarize how this has happened with the Pharisees and how what we need to be watching out for. There's an application of Scripture comes along. The Scripture maybe we agree upon, even in the principle form, but the way I apply it is different than the way you apply it. And because of that, there's resistance to the application And that resistance can even create some conflict. And maybe I want to defend that application. And so I try to begin justifying that particular application. And and, and when I do that, and the Scripture is not that clear on it, I inevitably are going to step outside of Scripture to try to sew up the argument. To make it airtight. And in time, there's a tendency to give those kinds of arguments equal weight with Scripture itself. And then lastly, we get preoccupied with those things. We get really preoccupied. And so that we can justify our, our argument, sewing up all the loopholes. It's like someone bringing you a dog, the dog sit for a week, and you've got a fence in your backyard, but it's got all these holes underneath, and in order to keep the dog from getting out, you go around and you begin patching up all those holes so the dog can't, you begin buttoning, buttoning up all of the problem areas, but then you become so preoccupied with buttoning up all the holes, and that's what can happen with Religion getting preoccupied with buttoning up all of the holes and losing the main thing. A sign that this might be happening to us is when we're intent on making our application universal and timeless and something impossible of violation. Because you know what that's called when something is a universal and timeless and impossible of violating? That's a principle. And when your application becomes the characteristic of a principle, now we are drifting in a way of a religion that Christ will will condemn. That's one of the ways, and by practice, we go astray. Now, it may be legitimate to consider other factors in our applications. But you have to be aware of extra-biblical factors that have a tendency to rise to the level of having equal weight with Scriptures. Because we can get preoccupied with that, buttoning it up and trying to sew up all of the areas. And in so doing, we lose sight of people and the relationships, and those with whom we've even disagreed. So we need to be careful to discern what the Scripture is from everything else, and separate out the principles from the application. I think we have to really examine ourselves and ask ourselves, what is the principle here, and what's the application here? It's a good exercise for us to constantly be in the grid work. It will really help us in the weightier matters in terms of our relationships. You know, in our circles, we, we're, conser- we're a very conservative ministry that have a lot of application. 
In our circles, we, we are concerned about uh, you know, Christian modesty. I'm just going to give some examples. Christian modesty is not a lightweight issue. The Bible explicitly tells us that we are to be modest in our character as well as in our deportment and the way we dress. But the issue comes in, where do you think? The application. The application. You have to apply a principle or else you just don't live it out. You're not faithful. And with the application, oftentimes comes disagreement. Conflict in the disagreement of what you think is modest versus what she thinks is modest. And then there's an attempt to button up one's application beyond what Scripture clearly reveals. And we get preoccupied with this. And in so doing, we end up neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness and love with that person. And what we've inevitably done is to raise our application to the level of Scripture while neglecting the clear teaching of Scripture in the weightier matters of that relationship. We've strained out the gnat, and so doing, we're swallowing the camel, humps and all. We're a church that embraces the principle of courtship. Guess where the the tension comes? It's when one person applies that principle different from another person, right? And you have disagreement over how that's applied. And pretty soon, perhaps maybe the one applying it one way wants to try to find all the justification, which Scripture is not there for, but he's going to try to button it all up and And then pretty soon we get down into all of the nitty-gritty on the meticulousness of how the do's and the don'ts and all of the recipe, and we've gone way beyond Scripture, but now we believe it with conviction to the point where we're breaking fellowship over a brother or with a brother over the very issue of which Scripture is not clear. We've neglected the weightier matters while we're meticulously parsing out the details and straining out the gnats while swallowing the, so the dromedary, <laughs> the double-hopped camels, whatever those are called. When we, when, when we have a failure to clearly discern Scripture from application, principle from application, it sends the church and even our personal lives down a wrong path so that that which began good goes bad and it drifts out to sea. So one of the extremes is when application is resisted. Even resisting the application may be a problem. But the way that the flesh sometimes responds to that disagreement by the one making the application makes the application rise to the level of Scripture. It's exactly what the Pharisees did. The second extreme of application that can send a church or a Christian adrift is pushing an application to an excessive degree. That doesn't necessarily involve a conflict between people, as the first one often does. But what I mean by pushing an application to an excessive degree is when those applications become our spirituality. Doing it that way, with that certain exactitude, is how you evaluate your spirituality and your relationship with God. Measuring your performance by some external standard or the outward person or, or measuring your performance and your, your, your involvement in Christian politics or your, an area of Christian service or some kind of a Christian ministry or even your evangelistic zeal. And many of the Lord's people have gone astray focusing to an excessive degree on even good things.
While one may have an evangelistic zeal, and we've seen a lot of this in the news lately with some of the leaders of the church, you come to find out they were tolerating gross immorality in their lives. And yet in their own judgment, they may think that God may overlook those sins because of how many souls were saved or how much good had come out of it. And they don't take their heinous sins seriously because the nature of their spirituality has been based upon an excessive application or area of service. And when the application of Scripture is pressed to an excessive degree and the performance or your service, or your outside person becomes your spirituality, you inevitably neglect or excuse the essential matters, your relationship with God and His people, matters of justice and mercy, faithfulness and love. You can be doing some good things, some really good things, but having a terrible sin in your life. And you end up discounting the terrible sin in your life because of the good things that you're so focused on to an excessive degree, and it's completely misfounded. I've seen this multiple times over the course of my years of ministry, where one is so focused on one area of ministry of application or service to an excessive degree that they feel justified in it even when their marriage was falling apart. They were neglecting the weightier matters but feeling justified by their superficial spirituality and their Christian service in some area. Their outward person or their service became their spirituality at the expense of their inward heart. They were majoring on the minors and missing the main thing. And before the Lord, what terrible sin or character issue might you be ignoring or marginalizing in your life or in your family, but somehow you're thinking of yourself in terms of those things that you are doing? Is there anyone here that might be in danger of thinking that, that good service or faithfulness can atone for a critical spirit or a backbiting tongue or a judgmental attitude? Is there anyone here that believes that good performance and regular church attendance and even faithful tithing can compensate for a critical spirit or a backbiting tongue? We're a church also that for the large part of us, if not exclusively at our current membership, homeschool our children. And we have some principles that we are basing that upon, and the application is the Christian education of our children. Maybe that's the principle, and the application of it is the homeschooling, yes. But some parents lose their very children that they were trying to save because they neglected the weightier matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness and, and love with their children in those relationships. But they were excessively preoccupied with the lesser matters of all the academic achievement and all of the, the structure of making sure the outward person was, was just so and exacted with precision, but they neglected the weightier matters, what really mattered. And their spirituality was misplaced. Oh, they kept their kids out of government schools, which is a good thing, in order to instruct them in godly character. But they lost track of their objective. And they pressed things to an excessive degree. And their kids then get older and rebel. And the parents 
neglected them with these weightier matters. And their children are adrift out at sea and the parents are responsible. We're a church that believes that women ought to have their heads covered when they gather for worship. We believe that's scriptural from 1 Corinthians 11. We know there's a lot of people that disagree with that. But the principle that matters is one of submission and being under headship while gathered in the place of public worship. But at home, if a wife manipulates her husband is not submissive wife at all, she negates the very principle in her heart that she's applying externally. Or a husband who has family worship with his family and is a stickler about making sure it happens, but there's very little justice and fairness and and mercy and love and faithfulness in the character of God. And it's just maybe more perfunctory. Pushes an application to an excessive degree while neglecting the very essence of what it's all about. We can so easily strain out the gnats with our precision and exactitude and superficiality of our external man while we're swallowing a camel and not even knowing it. When people follow a particular script of application, but their hearts are not into the principles from which the application springs, it is a wrong spirituality, and the moorings have been loosed, and they're drifting in the wrong direction. That can happen to individuals. It can happen to a church. We could be about our corporate worship and the beauty of the music and the precision of the liturgy and all the glorious things, and yet we can neglect the weightier matters of the law and have all these things that are right and good and left undone, and, and yet at the same time neglecting the relationships that are the essence of what God's people are to be in union with Christ and communion with one another. We're drifting. If that's true of this church, if it's true of you personally, if you've contributed to that kind of, we need to pull this in and repent and let the Spirit bring us back and get our anchor fixed back in Christ. When people have made their arguments for their applications and yet are unjust with the people who differ with them, And perhaps they even mischaracterized those people and they scoffed at them and they didn't bother to do their homework and find out all the facts. Justice was completely neglected when pressing their application on others. We weren't being fair. Sometimes men are not merciful in their assessments of of their Christian brother. They malign the other person. They accuse his motives. They even judge the motives and they get very critical. How would you like God to be that exacting with you when you made mistakes? We need to be aware of our tendency toward this because we all have sinful flesh with us. We all have these weaknesses. We all have to repent of these things and get the moorings shored up in Christ and remember who we are in Christ. Remember what God has done for you and for your neighbor and for your wife and for your husband and for your children and for the person in the pew behind and the person up there. He was merciful to that person, so cannot you. He was merciful to you, so cannot you. Do you want the justice of God? That justice has been put on the, on the back of Jesus Christ who took all of your sins and who bore those things to the pain of death and the suffering of the wrath of God for you. And can you not be fair with your brother because Jesus has bore the entire brunt of that for you in the presence of God? Can we not be faithful to the things that God has told us about the weightier matters while not leaving the other things undone and being particular about those things, but in the the broader scope of really the primary obligations of who we are with each other, a people of God in union with Jesus Christ together in covenant one with another. But we need to be aware of our tendency 
to be straightening out the gnat, to be precise in the exacting of our applications or neglecting the love for one another. And if we're not careful in maintaining the primary obligations of the Christian religion, we can fall prey to swallowing camels and being a church ultimately that Christ condemns rather than commends. Jesus wasn't like that. He took your justice upon himself that you might be free. Jesus is constantly merciful to you and not rewarding you or me what we deserve. Can we not do the same? Jesus is faithful. Jesus is loving. And to be a faithful follower, we need to be like him in all of our relationships with one another. And may God help us not to drift away from this. And if we are or have we been, let us rein that back in. Yes, I think we've all been a little negligent, a little sloppy, including your pastor. Let's rein it in. Let's get our focus on Christ. People are going to sin against you, and I'm going to sin against you. I'm going to plead for God's mercy. I'm going to plead for yours. Forgive me for all of my sins. Every Lord's Day, I'm on my knees right there confessing my pastoral sins and where I've fallen short, neglecting the weightier matters, focusing on exactitude with precision. But I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one who's sinned in this way. We all have work to do to get our eyes back on Christ And to know that this body is a body for whom he has died. And we owe, we owe Christ our love in loving one another. Being merciful where people fail. Suffering long when they continue to do us wrong. Leaning into those relationships that are broken. And looking to Christ and praying for those who abuse you and misuse you. That, that's, that's right out of the Sermon on the Mount. That's who we are. So God help us to be more Christian and more Christ-like. May he bring the ship back to the dock and tie up the moorings to the anchor that we have behind the veil, which is Christ himself, and bring forth an abundance of spiritual fruit on these weightier matters to the praise of the glory of his grace while not leaving the others undone. Our gracious Father, you you hear the prayer of the pastor of this church of which we all join in asking that you would forgive us for our sins where we have been meticulously exacting in some areas but have neglected the weightier matters. In some areas, we've not been fair with other people in our assessments behind their back. We've talked mercilessly. We've not shown love. We've not been faithful to the covenant. I've been faithful to pursue unity and oneness of mind and spirit in this body. We ask that you would forgive us, each one individually, where we have contributed to this corporate sin. And forgive us corporately. Lord, you have gifted this church with so many wonderful, wonderful gifts. We do not want to use these gifts for an occasion to sin or neglect the weightier matters. So we ask that you would bless us in a warm relationship with you. May each one of us spend daily time with you, not in a perfunctory way, but in a way that gets hold of heaven, praises you, not complaining about our lot, giving you praise that are due to your name, and turning our our prayers into 
to beautiful times of fellowship with our God through Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to use this message in each one of our hearts to to glorify your holy name and bringing forth much fruit from it and keep us from drifting away from the main things. We give you thanks for your mercy upon us, for your faithfulness to us, for your love for us, and for the justice that has been paid with Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.